If you want to find your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, we've got about two more weeks. We've been systematically and expeditiously making our way through this book, right? And uh, we have got ourselves today in Romans chapter 16. There was a recent interview that's been published um, with this basketball star, Kobe Bryant. I'm sure many of you are familiar with him. And uh, he agreed to do an interview and took place not too long ago. And the interviewer asked him a question I don't think he was expecting. I think he was thinking like, you know, I'm going to talk about me and my great attributes as a basketball player. Am I still playing for the Lakers? Things like that. But no, the interviewer asked this. He asked him, do you have any friends? And uh, I want you to hear his sobering reply. He says, well, you know, I have like minds. You know, I've, I've been fortunate to play in Los Angeles where there are a lot of people like me, actors, musicians, businessmen, obsessives, people who feel like God put them on earth to do whatever it is that they do. Now, do we have time to build great relationships? Do we have time to build great friendships? No. Do we have time to socialize and to hang out aimlessly? No. Do we want to do that? No. We want to work. I enjoy working. And I think we thought we'd just going to move on to the next question, but the interviewer then followed up with this. Well, do you miss the idea of having a great friendship? And I want you to hear his reply. Listen to the transparency. This is what Kobe Bryant said. Well, of course, it's not like I'm saying I don't need friends because I'm so strong. It's a weakness. When I was growing up in Italy, I grew up in isolation. I was the only black kid. I didn't speak the language. I'd be in one city, and then we'd move to a different city, and I'd have to do it over again. I'd, I'd make friends, but I'd never be a part of the group because the other kids were already growing up together, so this is how I grew up. And these are the weaknesses that I have. I'm going to tell you that you may be able to go through life without developing friends, good friends. In fact, you may be able to be involved in some pretty significant accomplishments. But you need to know this, that significant spiritual leadership is always sourced in strong personal relationships. If you're going to be someone who's going to influence others in their growth and maturity in Christ, if you're going to be that one who shares the gospel, you have to have the ability to make friends and to engage others. And when you come to the Apostle Paul, we kind of put him in like this totally other category. I mean, we see him so used by God and we like, well, he was totally different. Actually, he is just like you and me. What made him so effective? What makes a spiritual leader effective? What was going on in Paul's life? What would make for an effective spiritual leader in your home, in our church, in our schools, in the, in the place that you work? What would it take? Well, I want to draw your attention to an often overlooked passage of Scripture. It's found in Romans chapter 16, verse 21, and it's, it's Paul's closing greeting. And I could tell you that I'll, I'll just kind of bypass this before, just bloop, pass it over. I'm sure you've done the same thing. It's kind of like those historical markers. You see them on the side of the road, you know, the historical marker. And what do you do? You just drive by, by them, right? It's like, yeah, you know it's there. 
And, but you don't ever take the time to look at it. And you actually might be looking as you're driving at some, at some places historically that have been highly significant, but you don't know it because you know what? You actually never took the time to read the sign. That's how Romans 16 is. Romans 16, God, I believe, had recorded these closing greetings for a purpose. We're meant to learn. There's things that God is seeking to instruct us. In fact, I think you're going to find there's some great insights into intentional spiritual leadership written in these verses. It kind of gives you the mindset of a spiritual multiplier. And so let me just begin by pointing these out. First is, if you and I are going to be uh, involved in an, as an intentional spiritual leader in our home, in our church, in our schools, in our community, you're going to have this pursuit. You need to be investing in others as you serve Christ together. It's not that you just serve Christ, which absolutely, if you are a Christian, you are doing, and you're supposed to be doing at least, but you're also investing in others at the same time. Look how Paul goes about it. Look at what he says here, verse 21. He writes, Timothy, my fellow worker. See that? We're working together. We're fellow workers. He greets you. Now, you remember Timothy. Timothy was just a young guy. Paul, on a second missionary journey, goes through a town called Lystra. There's a young guy. We know that he was probably like teenager, maybe up to age 20, because 15 years later, Paul still calls him a young man. This is like kind of like that high school kid that really walks with Christ and is making investments in the life of the church, and he's sharing the gospel. He gets the picture of making disciples, and he does the work. He is, he's got such depth as a young person. Paul says, I want you to accompany me. You're going to be on this missionary journey. And so Timothy does. It's like we know quite a bit about Timothy. Of the three last letters that we have that the Apostle Paul wrote, two of them were written to who? Timothy. He's, he's deeply loved. Paul considered Timothy like a son. He poured into this man's life. When he wrote uh, the letter to Phil, the Philippians, he said this, You know about Timothy, his proven worth, that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. I mean, we've got a deep relationship. You want a guy you can count on for tough situations to go to tough churches like Ephesus? You get a guy like Timothy. Timothy had a lot of issues. He had some confidence issues. Sometimes he was prone to, like, wanting to hold back. He could get discouraged. Sound familiar? He was very much like you and I. But Paul kept pouring into this guy, and there was significance in this relationship. He calls him a fellow worker. Notice another guy. He says, not only Timothy, my fellow worker, greet you, but greets you, but so does Lucius. Now, this may have been the guy that you see uh, in Acts 13, who is one of the teachers that actually commissions the Apostle Paul on a missionary journey. Might be that Lucius. However, Lucius is just another form of the name Luke, and it is possible, we don't know for certain who, which Lucius this is, but it is very possible that Paul is with Luke, the beloved physician, once again. You know who wrote most of the New Testament, don't you? If you think it's the Apostle Paul, you're wrong. Actually, it was Luke. If you look at the actual bulk of words written, when you consider the Gospel of Act, Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts, and you put them together, that is more New Testament written by the beloved physician than even the Apostle Paul. And perhaps he's once again with him, and he says, even Lucius, perhaps it's Luke, he greets you. 
You know, these to you, they may seem like names on a piece of paper. Names in the book, names in the Bible. That's why we just scoop over. They don't, they don't mean anything to you. But for, for Paul, these were like his greatest friends. These were the comrades that he went through the ministry with. He poured into. They had deep relationship, deep friendship. And look at this next guy. You want to find one of the great guys in Scripture. There he is. Look at that. Jason. He also greets you. Man, what a guy. You remember after Paul and Silas had been beaten, thrown into jail, remember? They're singing praises. God miraculously releases them. And they have to leave Philippi. The next city they go into is Thessalonica. And it kind of went from bad to worse, okay? For three weeks, Paul, as was his pattern, continued to go into the synagogue, and he proclaimed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, showing how the Old Testament was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, this infuriated some of the Jews. They did not want this Jesus to be their Messiah. They were rejecting that, and they turned the city into a riot. If you've read Acts chapter 17, it's disclosed where the Jews were jealous, it says. And so they went and they found, the scripture says, calls them wicked men. They grab them out of the marketplace and they create a mob and they literally set the city into an uproar. They go to a particular house that is right next to the synagogue who is housing Silas and Paul. You happen to know which guy that was, whose house that was? It was Jason. Yeah, that's right. It's Jason. And it says they literally attack his house. Can you imagine someone coming, like a mob coming and just starting taking hammers and start beating down your house and breaking it down? And they were so effective at this, they literally were able to grab Jason and they pulled him out in the midst of this uproar. Jason was one of those guys who had placed his faith in Christ. And there was a deep friendship that took place in a pretty quick period of time. Jason is not one of those kind of fair-weathered, fickle kind of friends like, well, I will certainly stand with you and your, your walk with Jesus and your ministry as long as there's no cost to me. But if, if things get tough and rough, I'm going to go incognito. You know, I'll pray for you on the side, right? But I'm, I'm not going to stand in the way. Jason's not like that guy. Jason says, I'm going to put my life on the line. I'll stand before the mob and I will protect you. And so it seems that he did. You see, these are the kind of relationships that Paul had. Deep, meaningful. They're doing the work of the ministry at the same time Paul is pouring into them. Friends, that's what intentional spiritual leadership looks like. And then we've, we've got more. Uh, as we keep moving through, you not only have Jason, but then you've got Sosipater. Okay, you see him, and we know a little bit about him. He makes an appearance uh, with the, the Bereans, and so perhaps uh, he's also like a very close relationship with Paul. We're not exactly sure a lot about him, but he is mentioned in Scripture, and he refers to him by kinsman. seems to me that uh, every time Paul uses this word kinsman, he's referring to those who were fellow Jews who are now believing in Jesus as Messiah. And then look at verse 22. If you think that the Apostle Paul physically wrote the book of Romans, you would actually be mistaken. Whoa, wait a second, right? Ah, uh, wait a second. Uh, that, that's wrong because Paul wrote Romans, right? Right? Well, what is, look at this text. I, Tertius, who write this letter, what? Who write, see that? Who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. What's going on here? 
I thought Paul wrote the letter. Now I'm finding out that Tercis, who's this Tercis guy? Well, let me tell you what's going on here. Paul, as was the practice in Rome, was that you would use what is called an amanuensis, a stenographer, a scribe. And there were a lot of these scribes that were, they were highly trained. And what they could do is they could write extremely neat and they took dictation. Vellum, paper, the scrolls, that was extremely expensive. And so what you did is you hired a scribe who could systematically neatly write everything that you said, and they would record it. They would do it word by word. This seems to be the pattern of Paul. So much so that Paul would end the letters by signing or writing a phrase of his own. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, he says, this is my mark. This is how I sign off on every letter. I write it. I write the closing greeting. But it seems that was Paul's practice as he used an amanuensis. And it's really interesting. Tertius looks to be a fellow believer. I'm not sure. Why did Paul do that? Paul was highly educated, certainly knew how to write. It's perhaps that because of his eyesight, it was going bad. Or maybe this. Maybe it was just another way to involve a person in the work of the ministry. You know, it's kind of like, you know, I could do it. But it's far better if I involve someone else to do it. And so we have Tertius. And notice what he does. He writes this letter and he says, you know what? What a privilege. I greet you in the Lord. And then look at verse 23. Here's another guy. Look at, here's Gaius. And he is, Paul writes, host to me and to the whole church. He greets you. Okay, here's a guy. Really interesting. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. Paul says, I only baptized two people when I was in Corinth. And one of those guys he baptized was Gaius. Gaius, his full name, Gaius Titius Justus, he is the guy that housed the church that was right next to the synagogue. He obviously was a man of wealth. He had, a, had to have a large home because he was housing the entire Corinthian church, and he was doing so. They were holding worship service in their home, and he also was the one who, just like the text says, he is the host to me. He is taking care of me. I stay there. It shows you that you can be a person of significant wealth and you can use those resources for the furthering of God's kingdom. No problem there. You don't have to like, well, if you're really holy and live in a house that's less than 300 square feet. No, maybe that's possible that you you can do that. But if God has given you wealth and resources, he's done so for a reason. To use them for his glory, to use them for the advancement of the kingdom. And you find guys very early on in the faith, like Gaius, that are doing just that. You see this? Paul's not some sort of lone ranger Christian. Oh, I'll just do it on my own. You know, I'll find some people to maybe take care of me, but it's all about me, like I'm some sort of all-star. No, he's an intentional spiritual leader. He's doing the work, but always at the same time, he's pouring into the lives of other people. I'd like to ask, what kind of spiritual leader are you? In your home, in this church, at your place of employment, in our schools, whether it be high school, junior high, at college, what kind of spiritual leader are you? Jim Putman, uh, he writes of his experiences of being a college wrestler. And I'll not give you the university, but I, I will tell you, give you a little quote of what he wrote. Jim writes, years ago, when I was a college wrestler, I had a coach whom everybody raved about. He was on track to compete in the Olympics, and he could do amazing things on the mat. Yet, as good as he was, it might surprise you to hear that I didn't learn much about wrestling from him. 
He saw his job as his own personal training ground, a way to showcase his own abilities. It soon became clear to me that he wasn't interested in coaching any of us in how to be great wrestlers. He needed us so he could continue his training. In other words, he was primarily interested in his own growth, becoming the best wrestler he could be. The coaching job was simply a way to get paid for his training. And then he goes on to write, you know, on the other hand, I've had wrestling coaches over the years who saw teaching others how to wrestle as their primary job and calling. These were the men I learned the most from. They created environments and structures in which kids grew in their abilities and confidence. Their job wasn't to perform. It was to coach others. And that made all the difference. And so I want to ask, what kind of spiritual leader are you? You want to be one who not only is involved in the work of the ministry, whether it be working with our kids, serving in missions, uh, being the fellowship family leader, working with youth, college. There's a myriad of ministries that take place in our church. You want to be involved in making disciples, but you also want to be actively involved in training others. What makes someone an intentional spiritual leader is not just that they do the work, they can do certain things, but they're training others to do the work. That's what the Apostle Paul does, and that's what you see. By the way, this isn't original with him. This is how Jesus went about the ministry. He did it, but he trained others. This is how the Apostle Paul goes about ministry. He did the work, but at the same time, he's pouring in and investing in others. You need to know that significant spiritual leadership always is sourced in strong personal relationship. And really, this is what we're supposed to do. Remember what Jesus said, I want you to make disciples of all the nations. That is the mission statement for the church in Appalachia. That's the mission statement for the church in Zimbabwe. It's what we do. We train apprentices, followers of Jesus. We do so by the power of the Spirit, and we do it for the glory of God. That is what we're called to do, and that's what Paul does. That requires not only that you do the work, but that you're also involved in helping others learn to do it as well. It's kind of like the Ferguson brothers in their book, Exponential. They, they lay out just a very simple, effective formula that's, that Jesus and the Apostle Paul and others followed. It's simply this. I do. You watch. We talk. Then I do. You help. And then we talk. And then you do it. I'll help, and then we'll talk, and then you do it, I watch, then we talk, but don't miss the next step. This is what makes you a multiplier. Then you do it, and someone else watches. You see that? That's how multiplication takes place. And that's what you see modeled here by Paul. That's exactly what he's doing. Remember what Paul said, my mission is this. It's the mission of Jesus, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we might present every man, every person, complete, teleos, fully mature in Christ. And he says, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. The only way that we will make disciples of all the nations is if we are multiplying ourselves and others. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. We have to be investing in others as we serve Christ and we do so together. Really, this is a big shift. 
It's a shift from just informing people, just educating, just downloading edu- uh, information, making you smarter. It's a shift to then equipping them where they're engaged, involved, and looking to do the same. Or you could think of it this way. You move from being a success, like a personal success, you can do it, and you're good at it, to being significant, where you're adding value to others. You're helping others grow. You're equipping them. Friends, if you want to be a a spiritual leader of influence, look at this greeting here. You may have missed it. But as you are serving Christ, you're always investing in others. Let me point something else out to you. Uh, Intentional spiritual leaders also have this priority. They are increasing believers' understanding of what it means to be in the ministry. Now, here's a guy you may have missed, but look at verse 23. Erastus. You see that? Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Cordus, the brother. Now, Erastus, he, he's actually given his title. He is the city treasurer in Corinth. And how it would work in Rome, you had certain positions that were elected. And elected officials would, like politicians today, make promises. And apparently, a guy like Erastus made promises, and he fulfilled them. How do we, how do we know that? Well, if you've studied uh, biblical archaeology, you've probably heard of what is called the Erastus inscription. And what we have is we've got this, it's, it's found here, right kind of by the theater in Corinth. There is this, this, right at kind of the beginning of the pavement there, there is the Erastus inscription written in Latin. And right, this is what it says. It says this, Erastus, in return for his position as like commissioner of public works, that's kind of a translation of the word, at his, he built, he laid this pavement at his own expense. Now this piece of pavement and this particular uh, inscription is dated for like the mid first century. It is very likely, most scholars conclude that it is the exact same Erastus that is being referenced here as Paul is writing from Corinth to Rome that he laid that piece of limestone with that inscription on it. He kept his word. He fulfilled his promise. Pretty powerful. Many references this Cordus, whether he is the brother of Erastus, we don't know, or maybe he's just a fellow fellow brother in Christ, but he says they send you their greetings. He is a brother. Now, you see this Erastus, and you're thinking, I have a lot of folks that would say this. Listen, Erastus... If you really wanted to serve God, you would get out of government work, right? There's folks that would say that, right? It's kind of like the idea, if you really are serious about serving God and you want to make a real ministry difference and impact, you got to get out of the secular work. You need to get into the sacred work, right? Because really, when it comes down to it, if you want to make a difference in the kingdom, you better be a missionary or a pastor or kind of helping out at a church. Otherwise, all your stuff is going to burn right? I mean, people think like that. A lot of folks think that way. We've got this great bifurcation. We have the sacred, which that everything they touch and look at and do is eternal. And I got all these folks, they're spending 40, 50% of their life and they're doing secular stuff and it ain't worth much. A lot of folks think that way. And you know why? 
because they have a terrible theology of work. Does your relationship with Christ matter in the workplace? Does it? Does it have any merit, benefit one, one, one day or the other? People want to know, does their work matter? Well, I want you to know that it is critically important that you understand the value of work from God's perspective. I want you to know that there's a lot of Christians, they feel guilty that they actually enjoy being a banker or a lawyer or a plumber or a construction worker. They, they find a lot of satisfaction in being a professor. But they feel like, oh, that's, yeah, I'm feeling good about something that I shouldn't be. If I was a, a missionary or a pastor, I could feel good about that. But and they, and they kind of go through life like that. I want you to know that most of God's strongest spiritual leaders do not stand behind pulpits. You know where they're at? They are in the workplace. That's where their major ministry is. And what you need to do is you need to take your Sunday faith and it needs to be seamlessly woven into your Monday work. I'll tell you something. If, if you are a Christian, I would imagine many of you here today are Christians. You are in the ministry. Did you know that? Now, that might be news to you. But you are in the ministry. And what you do throughout the week, whether you're a student or a homemaker, a professional, whether you got a job that's uh, blue-collar, white-collar, it doesn't matter. You're in the ministry. And what you need to do is you need to understand God has you in that particular ministry for a purpose. I find that most Christians have such a deficient understanding of work that you remember not too long ago we actually did a, a series on the theology of work. I'd strongly encourage you, just go to our website. You can go under Messages, Tools for Growth, and you can find, it, it says like, Your Work Matters. Two-part message. And we're gonna, and dives into the theology of work. It will revolutionize how you see yourself and what you do. But your work matters. Work is a person's particular contribution to God's good world and the common good. That's what work is. And you need to know that people, you and I, we were made for work. Did you know that? You were actually made for work. All you have to do is go to the very beginning of the Bible and you see how much God talks about work. God himself is working, creating. And then he creates man. And you remember like in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to what? To cultivate it and keep it. So you have Adam, and soon comes Eve, and they're involved in producing, governing, developing creation as God intended. That's what they're doing. They're working. Work is God's idea. It's what we're created for. A lot of folks think this. <laughs> you know, the reason we got work is because of the fall. Man, if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, life would be awesome. But no, we got to work in the sweat of our brow, and it's painful and thorns and thistles. Man, that's my job, and it is painful and brutal, and it's all this work as a result of the curse. And that is wrong. You know why? Because work existed even before the fall. You and I were designed for work. And it's really interesting. When you see that word cultivate in 2.15, it's the Hebrew word abad. It could be translated uh, cultivate, uh, work, uh, serve. It's also the word that was used to like to serve God and to serve God as in worship. 
So in the Hebrew mind, abad, work, worship, they could be synonymous. And it really, once you understand that we were designed for work, and you look at Adam and Eve, what are they doing in the garden? If you get the idea that they, well, the first thing they did is built some pews, and they sat in them and sta- stood up every once in a while, and they just sang a bunch of songs, and that's all they, they did, that's actually not what they did. Now, they may have had some times of worship, probably didn't look quite like that, but you know the major way that they worship God is they worship God through their work. And that changes everything. I mean, you can honor God whether you're plumbing toilets or you're designing something with architecture or you're making an Excel spreadsheet. That's what work is. It is an opportunity for worship. And that's the beauty of the gospel. God redeems us from sin. We trust in Jesus. Not only are we cleansed from sin, but we are given new life in Christ. And it changes everything. So like when you look at the book of Colossians, for instance, when it talks about the preeminence of Jesus and how he transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son... And then he goes on to talk about what that looks like in Colossians 3. It affects every area of our life, especially your family. And the very next thing he talks about is that it changes the way you work. Remember in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, it says this. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. God will make sure you're rewarded. You may be getting ripped off right now, and I'm sure plenty of you think you are getting ripped off. I should be getting paid more. Probably should. But God is going to make sure that he recompenses you fairly. But you don't serve that particular master that you got at work, that boss of yours, or that company. You know who you really serve? You serve Christ. He's your Lord, right? And master, you serve him. That means how we go about our work, what we do, how we see what we do. It's really our work becomes worship. And so it does. You keep Christ at the center of your work and your work becomes worship. You know, when Jesus, it says in Matthew five seventeen that Jesus uh, fulfilled all righteousness. Remember that? Do you know what Jesus' occupation was? He was a carpenter. For most of his life, he grew up in a carpenter's family and he was a carpenter. All that goes with that. All the contracts, all the letdowns, all the problems that come with being a carpenter, being in the workforce, he experienced, and yet he filled all righteousness. For the final three years, he functions like an itinerant rabbi, and because he is the Son of God, he provides propitiation for our sins by dying on the cross and rising again. But friends, you need to see your work in a whole new way. John and Wynne Stanford, John is a professor at Iowa State He got a nice sabbatical. They went back to Washington, D.C., where they had come from. Uh, While they were there, they went back to the same church because they loved their pastor, Dr. Richard Halverson. Uh, This is in 1980. Dr. Richard Halverson eventually went on to become the chaplain for the U.S. Senate. And uh, Dr. Stanford said, hey, Dr. Halverson, you know, I'm a university professor, but at times I've wondered if I shouldn't just become a pastor and go into full-time ministry. And Dr. Halverson said, Nah. (laughs) you don't want to do that. And he said this, one day you will be absolutely amazed at the influence you've had for Christ. That's what's going on. Do not miss out on the opportunities that God is giving you right where you're at. I know it's hard. It's, It's tough. I remember working in the insurance world. There's a lot of difficult stuff. But you have to have God's perspective. Pastor Tom Nelson in Leewood, Kansas, 
He writes of a woman who sent him an email on the subject of work, and as, as she was coming to understand that, indeed, our work can be worship. And I want to just read you an excerpt of her email. She wrote this. Uh, a stay-at-home mom doesn't get a lot of accolades or affirmation. I thought I'd get an amen on that, but I guess all of you husbands are doing such a stellar job. You're like, what is she talking about? All right, let's keep moving. A stay-at-home mom doesn't get a lot of accolades or affirmation. No paycheck, no glowing review from their boss. I've been working through these thoughts and feelings, and several weeks ago I decided I wasn't going to spend any more time feeling like a victim. I have had a new outlook on life over these past few weeks, and I feel so much better. I have never thought of being a mother as an act of worship. I can look at it in a whole new way now. I can see the contributions I make to my household as what I was uniquely created to do for this season of life. Friends, that's what you need to see. And work not only provides for you an income so you can provide for your family or for yourself, it provides resources so you can give to God, furthering of God's kingdom. But, you know, your work is probably one of the major ways God brings about sanctification in your life. Through all the disappointments and hardship, and, and it's hard, it's difficult, it requires dependency upon God. And he grows you and shapes you into the image of Jesus. It's kind of like our vision, you know, that maturity tree? As you are abiding in Christ, you've got a relationship with Jesus, you sink deep roots in knowing God and his word, and what happens, your character gets changed, and it shows up in your relationships, and it also shows up in your ministry. Which, if you've got a job, you're in the ministry, and you treat it as such. It's your career. Yeah, you probably have a role in this church, but you most certainly have one in our community. That's what you see. You see it as a ministry. And now, obviously, some of your work environments are less than ideal. But if you think of people like Joseph and Boaz and Daniel and Nehemiah and Esther and Priscilla and Aquila, some of these environments were far from great, right? But they flourished. Why? Because they knew their God and they understood their purposes in his plan. So live out your place in his purpose. Get a vision and understand that your work matters. And... If you question whether or not your work matters, the question, the question you really need to be wrestling with is, what am I doing with what God has entrusted to me? Your work matters tremendously. And don't forget this. When Christ is at the center of our work, our work becomes worship. So if you and I are going to be people of influence, spiritual leaders of influence, we obviously need to be investing in others as we go about the work. We need to help people have a better understanding of what ministry means. But finally, notice how this text closed. You want to instruct believers to grow in grace. Look what he says, verse 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Grace. What is grace? Grace is the spiritual riches that we have because of our relationship with Jesus. It's, it's unearned, unmerited. God just pours out his strength. It's like the working of the Spirit. It gives you love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's God's grace that gives you perspective, wisdom. You see your life differently. You have a different strength in life. All of this comes from the Lord. Now, yours might be in bracket, and that's because in some of the earliest uh, manuscripts that we have, verse 24 is not in them. It's in a lot of them. My personal take is this. Paul always signed off with his own hand, Every letter. And I think that's what happened in verse 24. I think he wrote this. 
picture in whatever you do. It's why he keeps saying, in fact, we just saw it last week in verse 20. He keeps telling you, keep going back to the grace of God. You don't do it on your own. You keep trusting in Jesus. You keep talking to him. You keep drawing strength from him. You walk in the spirit, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So friends, this is an inside look at intentional spiritual leadership. You may have been blown past it before, but isn't there some great insights into what this looks like? You know, the health of our church is determined by the development of its people. It's a process we all have to be involved in together. And friends, this is how a church is developed. This is how people are discipled. This is how leaders are matured, and this is how the gospel goes forth. And if I could just leave you with one piece of advice, probably one of the best pieces of advice I've ever received, and that is this. In life and in ministry, just bloom where you were planted. Just bloom where you were planted. You see, significant spiritual leadership always is sourced in strong personal relationship. Just bloom your planted for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, perhaps we have missed the significance of these closing words of greeting. And yet, now we see. You like opened our eyes and we understand that there's reasons that Paul was so successful despite all the hardships because he was pouring in and investing. He cared deeply about people because he loved you greatly. Father, may we be like that. And for the person who has come here today who has never trusted in Jesus, and you've got their full attention, may they just right now pray with me and say, God, I turn from selfishness and my sin and the idols that are in my life, and today I believe and I put my faith and trust in Jesus. Be the Lord of my life. And God, help us to grow. Help us to take these words and the insights we've seen and put them to play in our life. And would you do so by your grace and your mercy and your power for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.